This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we have Mike Dill. Mike Dill's a partner with Holland & Hart, a firm he's located out of Denver. He's a corporate M&A securities startup specialist in the legal arena. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Bob. Absolutely. You know, given the COVID pandemic and some of the, I guess, earth changing or seismic shifts in the business climate, I thought it was particularly useful to bring Mike on and talk about some of the issues that might be facing business owners. And, you know, what we hope to cover today, so you guys have an idea of what's coming, is we're going to talk about what do you do about staying compliant, being aware of the state, local orders and directives, talking some of the issues that may be facing you in the HR side of the house. You know, as far as some of the things that you need to be keeping in mind with as you're either continuing or resuming operations, whether it's supply chain issues, new business lines, and so on, talking a little bit maybe about if you've got outstanding lines or loans, financing issues, what do you do about those and how do you take and provide? And then there's a fair amount of concern or shifting landscape on some of the government relief programs in particular, PPP. So we've got Mike on. We're going to go through them so you guys can uh, know what you're looking forward to in the episode. Mike, why don't we start out a little bit with kind of how you got here and who you serve? That'd be great. So I act as outside general counsel for a lot of my companies that are clients. And what that means is they're smaller companies that can either be growing in a variety of industries, tech, manufacturing services, but they don't have a lawyer that's basically on staff, right? So they have a firm that they can call to get a lot of their questions answered. So yes, I will help with people when they sell their companies. I will help people raise debt and equity financing. But for a lot of my clients, I get asked all kinds of everyday questions, which is I've got an employee that reported me to the police because I'm still operating when I've got a stay-at-home order that's going on, which is a real client, a real situation. So what I do is I kind of am the, the quarterback of a team at my firm. So I can pull in specialists that are very well-versed in very specific issues, right? In employment, tax, et cetera. But a lot of the questions I can answer is just an outside general counsel. So I help my, my clients navigate the variety of legal issues that are facing their businesses today. So, which is a lot right now. <laughs> you know, I thought we would try to drill down. And so, you know, as we go through the categories, you know, and, and I can imagine the quantity and volume of questions from the clients due to the level of uncertainty. So how do the, how do the customers or how should they be thinking about the directives from, you know, either municipality or state government? Well, I think the first thing, and this may be obvious, but it's worth stating is these are not optional directives, right? A lot of people have different levels of concern over uh, this coronavirus and the pandemic and the way that it's affecting their business, but you can't just choose to just disregard them. And I think there are some people that are a little bit more aggressive in their interpretation of the directives and orders than others. What I mean by that is you actually need to just be aware of them. And like you mentioned, Bob, they're changing very rapidly, even at the state level when orders have been in place for a long period of time, they're still changing every four weeks, right? We're in a different phase and I've seen some planned expansion of orders because we're in level two, right? We already did level one, we're in the middle of level two. There's going to be a level three and there's going to be a level four, and then there may be a, a new normal, right? It's not going to be back to the old normal. So each of these different levels is going to have different requirements and people are really navigating a lot of them now because there's some companies like my firm, for example, that we're not back in the office yet. Even though we could be, we've chosen to continue to have people work remote because we can and it's safer while we put the procedures in place that are going to protect employees and our customers if they 
would choose to come to our offices. So I would start at the state level and I would start there and then drill down at the county level or the city level, depending on where your operations and and business offices are, because a lot of the state and local or a lot of the county and local directives are built off of what's being released by the state or just defer to the state. You know, shifting gears a little bit and thinking toward the HR side of the house, you know, HR is already a topic of interest, remains a topic of interest. And now there's going to be a shifting landscape, I think, due to what policies and procedures do you have in place, depending on whichever level you're in, bringing people back and keeping them safe with the COVID crisis. So what are your thoughts about that? So for companies that were proactive, that put in place new policies, I think, and our firm did, for example, but those policies were probably put in place late March rather quickly. My guess is on a shorter term basis than this pandemic is turning out to be. So I think you should make sure that you're evaluating those, one, just as you transition employees back to work to make sure those policies still work, and two, to see if they're going to work for the duration of the Honestly, there's a combination of time where people are going to probably work remote and work in the office, given that most non-essential businesses can only have 50% of their workforce in the office at this time. So I would just, first, you got to dust them off, get familiar with them, make sure they're going to work for the longer period of time. Second, I think you need to be thinking about, and if you didn't put in place those policies, which a lot of companies did not, how do our existing policies work with this new environment? And are they going to work for the long run? And to be honest, You need to think about whether they're covering the situations that are coming up on a daily or weekly basis with your employees. So one question that we've heard a lot is, I have employees that don't feel safe at work. I mentioned the client of mine that had somebody that called the cops on the company and they were, the client was in directive with the governor's order. The employee didn't really want to work. And so he thought this might be his way to, to not have to work. He didn't think that he couldn't get fired for that, which was interesting perspective. But the point behind that example is that there are going to be employees that don't feel safe, right? And so how are you addressing those questions when they come up from your employees? What type of additional procedures are you putting in place? Now, that's beyond HR, but it does involve HR as well. So, you know, and I think about that, you know, so as far as you know, as an employee, you're healthy. Right. And so you're compliant and you're doing what you need to go to work. And somewhere midday or somewhere along the way, you go, you know, I feel less well, you know, and so on. For the business owner, if you have a policy, what's the challenge or issue about making sure that you're compliant with your own policy? Well, it's a good question. You need to be basically just enforcing it equally among your employees, right? So, and this is how sort of life has changed underneath employment laws with the pandemic, right? One of the things that you can put in place now is basically if you're sick, you can't come to work, right? Or if you get sick at work, you have to leave work. It sounds like common sense, but you can do that as long as there's, you can force employees to go home, right? As long as they're in danger of of getting other employees or getting customers sick, right? And that's something that you need to be doing consistently. It actually reminds me of a situation another client of ours had, which is they've been doing the guidelines correct. They've had mandatory testing when employees check in at work and when they check out at work, they test, you know, take the thermometer across the forehead, check temperature. Well, one of the persons that was doing that was friends with another employee. The employee 
had been furloughed, hadn't worked for a while, really needed the job, failed the test, but convinced his friend that was doing the testing to write down to basically change the results so that he was in compliance. Worked full day and felt sick, so ended up working that day, coming in the next day and working only a few hours and having to go home, right? Both of these days, the results were doctored. So this is what slays me. Came in a third day and doctored, you know, the results again. And it basically, there was a huge risk of getting other employees sick. As far as they know, they weren't any other employees that were sick. So that's the good news, right? But the point of all of this is you can have great policies, but you need to make sure your employees are complying with them, right? And of course, these employees weren't, then the, then the employer you know, had to make the decision about whether to terminate, which they had the ability to do, but all because, and understandably so, with people not having a lot of work, they were wanting to work, but they just really couldn't. There's too much risk. And the fact that you're lying to your employer, right, was definitely good enough cause to let these employees go. So, you know, I think about that, that employer going, so I brought in you know, my workforce back, you know, we've managed to navigate, you know, this pretty well. We've got our policies and procedures in place. And yet I have an asymptomatic worker come in and get another at-risk worker ill. What's my risk as a business owner? So there is real risk, right? There's a causation issue here that no one has the answer to and that's being debated about what do we do, right? But if you can prove, right, or make it very likely that they were transmitted on your premises, right, as an employer, you may have liability, right, for not providing a safe work environment. And that's underneath a variety of federal and, and different state employment laws and statutes. So that's the real risk, right, is that some employee would bring a claim against you as a business owner for not providing a safe work environment. There's additional risk if you don't do it correctly with current directives about, you know, 50% employer the mandatory testing for certain industries, right? There's additional risks of violating the law so you could have state agencies or even federal agencies that can bring claims too. You know, I, I think about all this testing and thermometers and health checks and, and all I can think of in the back of my mind is HIPAA. Does HIPAA ever creep into here? Yeah, I mean, you obviously can't share that information about employees' health with, you know, HIPAA does come into play here, right? but you can still use HIPAA within your business, right? Because you're not really using the medical information as if you were like a medical provider, right? You're basically just logging and keeping the information as you're required to do so underneath the state directive. So you can't share it with third parties, right? But you can use it within your organization to make decisions about this, right? Whether to send employees home or not. I was thinking about that. So I'm a business owner, you know, it says I'm ready to try to get restarted and get my operation going. So I've got my policies and procedures sorted out. You know, I've got my testing sorted out and says, you know, but I can't, you know, cover all my bases. So I would like to try to, to reach out to my my insurance team and ask, how do I take and offset my risk with an insurance product tool or whatever, what does that discussion look like? Well, I would wish you the best of luck in that conversation. As far as I know, I'm, I haven't had clients that have had, had luck in getting those types of claims you know, covered, to be honest. And there's general carve-outs with most CG&I policies that deal with things like pandemics, right? So a good friend of mine is an insurance broker with Lockton, and he basically said they had a lot of calls early on in this pandemic saying like, this is great, right? I've got coverage if anything goes on. And he said they had a lot of hard conversations with their providers. So unfortunately, there's not a lot of insurance, as far as I'm aware of, to, to purchase to offset some of those risks. Now, there are larger conversations conversations going on about trying to introduce bills to protect employers. So basically new law 
that if you're operating in compliance with all of this federal, state, local directives for your business, you shouldn't have liability, even if somebody does get sick. So I've been following those conversations, and I think there's a chance that those may become law. They're getting a little bit more traction, but right now it's really just that, just conversations, just proposals. You know, amidst everything else that a business owner has coming their way, you know, I think about the continuing operation in the new normal is going to be an interesting exercise. And so, you know, in thinking about that, you know, as we're going to go back out and, you know, hopefully communications with our existing customers have been going along normally as typical, what types of things do you think they should be thinking about when they're talking to not just their customers, but their supply chain? What types of things? Yeah. So it's things like, I mean, you're kind of asking yourself a, a couple of things, right? If your business has changed because you've pivoted, for example, we have a lot of clients that have started creating or selling masks or PPE or similar types of manufacturing operations that they didn't have before. A lot of the questions that they're facing is, well, one, how long is this market going to be here for this new product? And two, from a regulatory standpoint, There were some matters put in place by the FDA and some other governmental agencies that sort of allow people to operate in a crisis, right? But it may not operate underneath the longer term. So I would say check with a regulatory attorney that has expertise with the FDA, for example, if you're making the products in that arena to make sure you can continue to operate them going forward. From just a general risk standpoint, we have a lot of clients that are negotiating payment terms or credit or collateral, right, with their suppliers or are renegotiating leases or renegotiating discounts at this point to make sure that they have the cash to operate over the over the long run. And I think now's a good time to do a lot of those. I never recommend clients not paying because I don't think that's a, a good tactic, but I will say it's good to negotiate right now. And you know, for the company that's pivoted to maybe a new product line during this time frame, what types of things should they be thinking about in this new business effort? So I think a couple of different things come to mind. One is you need to make sure that you are manufacturing something that there's going to continue to be a market for. We've had a lot of clients that have been moving to manufacturing PPE or gloves or face masks or things that are not their normal product line, but are needed in the healthcare setting. And there's just the demand requirement, which is more of a business issue, but there's also a regulatory approval requirement. FDA loosened some regulations for a period of time to allow many companies to do that kind of work. But normally you'd have to get a regulatory approval, like a license or permit. So you just need to be mindful of that if you're going to do it over the long run. And I would check with an attorney with expertise in that area. We were talking before the show a little bit about the financial health check-in. And, you know, that sort of goes without saying, if you haven't checked your health by now, you're probably reminded as to where you are. But what I wonder is, you know, with some of the rules being relaxed with respect to COVID or whether there's some kind of major force majeure issue because you can't get supplies, with that type of thoughts, what might you suggest a business owner consider with respect to contracts and being aware of somebody's rushing to give you, you know, what was the story? Somebody had like a $60 million contract for face masks and they didn't deliver anything. And so, yeah. Yeah. No, there's been a, a lot of those. You hear some of those high profile fraud in, in New York. It, it's funny. I saw a LinkedIn post this morning from a mayor from a relatively big city in the Midwest that basically said, don't LinkedIn me, message me, or otherwise think that I'm going to give you a $5 million contract for face masks just because we're buddies on LinkedIn, something along those lines, which is good, right? Like lessons are being learned. But to your point and to your immediate question, I think you need to be having conversations with, with those lenders, right? With maybe your investors, if you brought in other equity investors in your company. 
with your customers and with your employees, right? I think everyone is expecting life to be different. Some companies are doing very well, but I would say the majority of companies are, are hurting a little bit, right? So I think everyone expects that if not business is normal and appreciates having upfront conversations because, you know, if your clients don't pay your bills, you can't pay your clients' bills. It's just a waterfall. And we're starting to see that with landlords, with rent, et cetera. But I think people will give you discounts if you're upfront and have conversations with them at the beginning about your financial health and your situation and are basically treating them fairly. I think you're going to get a much different result if you just choose not to pay rent for two or three months and you don't communicate about it. I think you may have seen Red Robin just got sued by their landlord for not paying for two months. And they're a public company, right? They're not even a smaller mom and pop company. So everyone's hurting, but that's why it's important to have good upfront conversations with all of those people. And I think people are willing to work together, right? We're all in this to get through this together, but I think you got to be fair. So yeah, I've been advising my clients to don't take the position of not paying, but to instead see how can we adjust the situation going forward. I think a lot of companies and one tech company in particular that I work with have realized they don't need as big of a lease as they have. Right. So do they really want to pay for that lease for another year and a half or two years if they don't need it? And so, you know, my advice is basically don't not pay for your lease, right? Pay for your lease, but negotiate the size of the lease going forward, right? That gives the landlord an opportunity to find someone else to potentially sublet it, right? There's just other ways that you can deal with it where it doesn't result in litigation. And I'm not a litigator and I hate litigation and I advise clients they can to stay away from it. You know, I, I was thinking as you were talking about, so let's say that you're you're working with some kind of renegotiation, whether it's a lease or a loan or anything else, right? And everybody's kind of in a hurry right now, it feels like, to get, oh, let's get the pain to go away. Let's go ahead and sign this. What thoughts might you suggest to the business owner that's got a modification in front of them as far as signing it? or being thoughtful? So I would see what the terms are, right? To see whether it's really advantageous to sign it now or it's more advantageous to be thoughtful because you don't know what the future is going to look like. I've got a, a company that I've been talking with now that is dealing with like an SBA loan that didn't get treated like an SBA loan. And right now, right, there's certain there's certain benefits to them to be treated as an SBA loan with the bank, deferral of principal and interest. And there's a lot of benefits to them that they would otherwise get. But we've been measured, right? We haven't rushed into signing anything because kind of like PPP, these relief packages are changing, right? So we've definitely been negotiating with the bank for a period of around three or four weeks as to what we want, but we're trying to get the relief, all of the relief, right? Not the relief we're just entitled to now is if we had an SBA loan. That's what I'm doing in practice is saying, well, wait a second, we're not just going to settle for what we currently understand the deal is, we want it as if it was a deal from the beginning, right? So bank, you need to work with us. And no, we're not going to accept your first offer, but we'll still continue the conversations with you to find something that'll work. You know, it's, it's, I remember the very first part of the PPP loan, it was like the Monday and talking to folks. And it was like, there was this iterative interpretation of what it really meant. And I think the SBA is open, the SBA crashed. They did, they didn't, they should, they shouldn't. You, It's forgiven. It's, you know, there was this it was like standing on a watermelon seed. We don't really know where that thing's going. So, you know, what thoughts might you have for the business owner that may have received a PPP loan? What should they be thinking about? Yeah, well, it's changing, <laughs> as you mentioned, daily, right? The biggest thing to be thinking about and continuing to think about, and, and by that I mean continuing to pay attention to the guidance, is the forgiveness aspect. So luckily, there was a fair amount of changes the first week or two on, on what constitutes forgiveness. There hasn't been as much since that original guidance was released on that. 
But this week, there was another very important point we mentioned before we started talking, Bob, which is if you have borrowed less than $2 million, you're going to be subject to less scrutiny when it comes to the forgiveness of a loan as to larger companies. And I think the reason that we came to that guidance was there was some conflicting guidance given by the SBA and the Justice Department as to your ability to have access to capital from other sources. And so this is an easy way to address that for a lot of companies. I'm not saying that there was still certification that needed to be made, needed to be true and in good faith, right? But there's going to be less scrutiny paid in the months and years to come if you got less than $2 million. So I would say that's the key. And then the other key is just how you're dealing with your employees, right? There's specific guidance about bringing them back by June 30th if you laid them off and how much of a reduction in compensation that you can do. Those are still subsets of this forgiveness element, but they're very important things that you your CPA or your attorney or somebody that's advising you needs to be well aware of. You know, I I think about in the time of change, you know, folks don't think sometimes very well when they're scared. You know, in talking to the business owners, I have them as client. I'm a business owner as well. You know, stepping back from the fear of the moment and taking some quiet time with people you know, like, and trust have worked with you when things weren't so striped. And let me just think about this more constructively and frame your questions, back up, think about it, get appropriate counsel, get your CPA, get your attorney, get Mike, you know, get these folks involved. And so let's frame the problem better. And if you have multiple problems, let's frame each one and then prioritize the problem. You know, and I think sometimes, you know, in this environment, there's a rush to get away from the fear or pain. And I'm sure you get a few of those calls, Mike. Yeah, I do. I think it's a fair observation. That's something that I myself have dealt with too, right? With my clients, right? How are they going to make it through this, right? Don't tell that to them when I'm on a call with them, but I, I worry on their behalf, right? And there's a couple of things that I have helped me, right? When I'm dealing with that and that I also tell my clients. One is to, have you heard of the Eisenhower box, Bob? Not sure I have. So I just happened to have it. Oh, you just happened to have. Do, yeah, I really did. It's, it's basically, there's a couple of different categories, urgent, not urgent, important, not important. And if you're really struggling with something and you can't, stop thinking about it, right? I look at this box and say, well, wait a second, is this urgent, important? And it kind of helps me decide, do I do something about it? Do I decide to do something later about it, right? Put it on my calendar. Do I delegate it and have somebody else on my team do it? Or is it really not important and not urgent and I just need to keep thinking about it? So that's kind of a first step. The other thing though, is I often tell clients, look, my advice to you is not one and done, right? You're thinking about this problem is not one and done. Even your counterparty that you're dealing with is not one and done. So let's talk about it. Let's think about it. And then let's circle up in a week or so and see if if anything's changed, if we still have the same mindset, because most of the stuff we're dealing with is not urgent. It's really when we get stuck in our own head and our own way of thinking that we can cause problems because we get trapped, right? We get stuck in a cycle of fear within a way that we think, and it paralyzes a lot of us from doing anything. So, you know, that do loop is what we used to call it in the military. You just kind of go faster and faster in a smaller circle, you know? And I think about, you know, there's a book I read recently. It's got an unfortunate title called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. And he talks about thinking time and how you can carve out 45 minutes and you go and actually sit down and you start basically journaling everything that you can think of. You know, one about the problem, is the problem or is it the symptom? You know, and if you can get past that, then go, okay, spend 45 minutes thinking of why is it this way? What can I do? What do I think? And usually by the time you're done, you can prior- prioritize the good thoughts versus the, the not so good ones. You know, but it's a tool, you yeah. know, and we talked about this a little bit before. 
you know, I think about so many of the businesses that have pivoted, you know, and they've pivoted, and it seems like everybody's in the PPE space. And, you know, at, at some point in time, that curve is going to stop and roll over. Right. And then you're going to have a bunch of people that are still doing PPE into a, there's more supply than demand, which is what we're seeing in the oil field right, right now. You know, so for, what would you suggest to those business owners, you know, that have pivoted away from their core business model in the intervening time frame they're doing PPE, what might you advise them to think about as, as some metric or strategy to pivot back from PPE back to their core strength? That's a good question. I would say your fellow business owners, I think a lot of people that are successful have a network either through an organization, just friends, the community somehow, right, that they know other business owners, especially business owners in similar industries. When we're here in Colorado, I've, I've been so impressed with how it's a give first mentality, right? where people are willing to help other people, give them just some advice, some thoughts, some practical things that they've dealt with, or just introductions, right? Where it has nothing to benefit somebody on their own. They're really just giving for giving sake. And that's what I would say is talk to other people in the industry that are either doing, you know, continuing the PPP, but slightly modifying, right? Or people that are in a similar just bucket as they are, right? Where demands drop for their services or their consumer product and see, what do I do? I mean, I was working with a client that was going to launch an outdoor clothing company that decided to pivot to a natural foods company, right? They were basically two days from ordering product from China when everything went to hell in a handbasket. And then they've made a pivot now in this next month to do a totally different type of company. And I think that's going to work, right? One, because there's some demand with food, with all the runs at grocery stores, et cetera. But two, because I think he found that there's a really big community here, especially in the Boulder area that deal with natural foods. So he's been able to find a great way to transition his business. And I think it's going to be for the long term, too. I don't think he's going back to actually the other business. Struck by what you were saying. And I was thinking, you know, we all worry about the things that we worry about and have some inkling of, you know, as you're looking down the road. And you go, so we've got the current problem. And, you know, usually folks can kind of say, well, I think I understand where the next problem is. If you're looking around the corner, what worries you about what's coming around the corner for these companies that you serve? That's a really good question. So, and one I'm going to have to think more about, <laughs> Bob. But what immediately comes to mind is just, I think it's two things. One is, you know, 70% of our economy is consumer spending. And we've had an artificially propped up industry, well, consumer products industry, just generally in the sense that government has funded this payroll right through the end of June. So I think there's some consumer spending that wouldn't have happened otherwise, which keeps the industry, basically the entire economy and the consumer products industry. I'm worried, and I know this is still in the sort of immediate to short term, but I'm wondering over the longer term how that plays out, right? How from July to the end of this year, that starts to play out with consumer spending mechanisms with, you know, just overall lower spending in the economy. But I think too, this pandemic has really shown how our supply chain in the U.S. is really screwed up, right? Whether it be pork, beef, chicken, right? Whether it be from China, products that are made in China, like we've seen a lot of weaknesses that I don't think a lot of us even knew existed here in the U.S. So that's a longer term problem that I don't know. I don't know how we deal with, right? Does that mean manufacturing moves to Mexico? What, what does that mean? And what does that look like? I don't really know. So those are the two that immediately come to mind. I'm curious if you have any thoughts though, Bob, about what's worrying you for the longer term. Well, you know, I think about, you know, the WeWork phenomena where you get in with all of your best buddies, you know, in a big working space together. And I think that was a dubious business model to start with, but it looks like the interest for everybody to go pile into a room with each other 
is probably going to wane. You know, I think about you know, Denver has a robust restaurant community. I mean, it's just amazing. Every little suburb around the place has a restaurant or multiple restaurants in them. And I think about most of them ran on passion and thin margins. And if your distance where you can have a quarter of your normal seating, you know, short of a vaccine coming out in a hurry, you know, how many people can do takeout? I don't really know. Right. You know, I think about the just-in-time inventory issues. You know, if you're a manufacturer of any description and you've got just-in-time, which was touted to be the thing, then your supply chain's interrupted. And Or, you know, for the guy that's raising chickens, I mean, if your slaughterhouse poops out, you can't hold the chickens for months and months and months. Yeah. You know, you've got a three-year-old chicken. I mean, what's that going to look like? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you right. know, so I don't think I've seen <laughs> a three-year-old chicken. Chicken's yeah. the new turkey. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I think about, you know, yeah. centralization issues, you know, and I think about the business owners, you know, how do you look around the corner? You know, is my business viable? Yes or no? Is it dead, you know, on arrival? What do I do about that? How do I protect my family and, and all my work? You know, and if my business is not going to survive, what do I do next? Can I pivot? Can I go? Is there going to be a business for sale, you know, that I can go in and, and, participate because there's a lot of baby boomer businesses. I think that in 08, they go, man, I should have sold in 07, you know, and they were said, we're going to hold on and things got so good, you know, for a long time. They says, well, I don't need to sell right away. They're probably looking back going again, you know, so I think about those issues, you know, and I think about, you know, almost everybody that's a top performer that I'm aware of, they bring coaches on board, you know, as sports psychologists, you know, people that teach how to drive, teach how to putt, I clearly need those guys because I don't play golf, you know, but I think about in these times, the quality of the folks that you surround yourself with to make really informed and good decisions. You know, folks might say, I want to save some money in this time because I'm short. My sense of that is there's probably not a better time because it's a whole lot cheaper to do this now than litigate about it later is my sense about this. You know, I would like to think that this will fade away into the memory banks as just a really bad one-off and we get a vaccine soon. But in the event that that's not true, you know, I think folks, I think manufacturing is going to come home. You know, I think having a service-based economy is an interesting experiment that was proven to have some holes in it. So... Yeah, I think it's really hard to understand how so much has changed in such a short period of time and to and to be able to understand what it's going to look like going forward. It's sort of anyone's guess, but everything that you mentioned, I definitely see. And the people that are really well positioned and good business leaders are going to actually end up doing great. I just saw a story about a brand in Salt Lake City that they were a consumer product company, demand dropped off, but they had warehouse and manufacturing space and were friends with another company whose demand took off. So they loaned all their customer service representatives, they loaned their entire space to this other company. And they basically, they're still two separate companies, but it's thrown a huge lifeline to them. And they have another, a huge advocate and consumer base that's going to be looking at their products, all because that business leader, and this is Cotopaxi is the name of the company. It's a great company, but their business leader was listening to a podcast or was friends with somebody that really challenged him about the types of leaders there are that come out of this crisis and what kind of what kind of a person are you going to be? And he said, you know what? I have been scared. I have been not sure what to do, but we're just going to try something. And he made that phone call and it totally changed his business. You know, I, th- I was thinking as you were chatting, do you think, you know, let's say that, you know, I'm that company that has a really good service warehouse department, but my demand is dried up. And there's a small company over here that needs this asset because their sales have taken off. Do you think you're going to see an uptick in mergers? So I think we'll see not an uptick overall. I think what we will see is people that 
are, especially in smaller companies, you have people that work together, right, to benefit both companies for a period of time. And I think we'll definitely see more of that collaboration. I do think we'll see more of the way of selective acquisition. So, you know, very big public companies that have a lot of resources that have been afraid to buy some companies because of the run-up in value and the way private equity firms have outbid a lot of other companies. I think now it's going to turn into a buyer's market from a seller's market. And so you're going to see a lot of really, really large companies buying out a lot of smaller companies because they've got the cash and the resources and can weather the storm a lot better. So I do think we'll see definitely more of those types of transactions. Yeah. In fact, I saw today where I think Facebook bought Giphy, you know, so are the gifts. Yep. They bought them, I think, for $400 yep. million today in the news. As you look across the startup community, you know, and the venture capital community in Denver, what do you think is going to be the upshot for those guys, you know, given this environment? So I think we'll see similar dynamics where investors have better, and I'm already seeing this in a lot of transactions where the values ascribed to companies over the months prior to versus post-pandemic or now, I guess, have dropped 25 to 30%. So if you were going to do a financing at $5 million pre-pandemic, now you can probably get a $4 million valuation for your tech company startup. And that's just the market, how the market's changed. And there's there's less capital to go around. But I do think we're still seeing very well-positioned tech companies get funding, right? Funding in that private market tends to lag behind public by six to 12 months, just generally, historically speaking. I think it's not as long this time around, but I do think it'll lag somewhat. So there will be less deals to get done, but there's still plenty of capital because there's been billions of dollars raised in venture capital. And there was actually a recent article too about more and more companies are in the Midwest. So not just here in the Rocky Mountain region, but the Midwest region, there's lots of different venture capital funds and tech companies that are getting started and are getting funded. But you're going to have to set yourself up above every other startup, right? You're going to have to say either you've gotten a lot of traction, you've done it being bootstrapped. You're going to have to still, in this pandemic, show not only the, those good metrics, but how you've also been able to transition with the pandemic. That, that would call into question the earnout language. If you don't think you're going to get what you want for your company, then the earnout discussion gets to be interesting, doesn't it? It does. And I've actually heard a metric called EBITDAC, which is <laughs> earnings before interest, taxes, da da da, da and COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah. So trying to use that as a metric to sell your business, I don't, I, I'm skeptical it works, but we've seen, we've seen people try to use it now. Yeah. You know, as we go through here, I think we could probably chat for some time. You know, the, the point behind having you on is you and I have talked in the past, you know, you've been active and, and you have vast experience in this field. And I thought it was really important for the business owners that, you know, we serve and, and talk to and listen to the podcast and others to start if they weren't thinking about some of these things, to one, to start thinking about, you know, the HR side of the house, what you're doing on financing, contracting, you know, if you've got a PPP loan, you know, what should you be thinking about? And, you know, before I wrap this up, Mike, how do people find you? How do they reach out to you on social media? Yeah, sure. I have a LinkedIn profile and Mike Dill is, I don't know the exact address. I can get it to you, Bob, but you can find me just by searching me on LinkedIn. We're also, Holland Heart has a website. I've got a profile on the website too, but my phone number is 303-295-8097. And my email address is medill at hollandheart.com. And I'd be happy to chat with anybody that is a business owner and has some of these questions that they're dealing with, because there's a lot of issues that we've seen over the last month and a half that we've been helping people work through. You know, I, I think as the situation mutates, or whatever the hell we've got going on now, 
you know, I think the challenges that we have today may well not be the same challenges we have a month from now. And I think as we iterate and, and work through, you know, you taking time out of your afternoon to come on and share generously with your experience and wisdom is, is greatly appreciated, you know, and, and I hope for the listeners, they found maybe a little less angst by some of the advice and, and commentary that we've had here. And, you know, for Mike's a pleasure to work with and as a real bright guy. And so, you know, in, in wrapping Mike, I'm, I guess, is there anything that I should have asked you? that I failed to ask that you think would be important for the business owner to consider? So nothing immediately comes to mind, but I would just say that I think one of the things that I've found personally, and and you may have too, is there's a little less noise going on these days. I mean, there was a lot of immediate noise, especially when the pandemic happened. But being myself, you know, working from my home office for the past almost two months now, gave me a little bit more time to sit back and reflect and think about my business, right? Think about my family, think about things that I think in the long run are really important. And so I think that's something that people have a chance to do now, right? To sit back and say, wait a second, in the grand scheme of life, what's really important, right? Family is definitely the most important. Obviously, I want to provide for my family. I, I want to be a good person. And I think in the grand scheme of things, that's one of the lessons that I've learned and I've seen that I'm very proud of, right, is how the whole reason we're doing this, right, is to help save lives, right, to help to keep people safe, basically to look out for each other. And that's something we've been missing a lot, I think, in the U.S., especially in the media and a lot of the debates. And I'm, I'm very glad to see that. So I think that's something that people should think about in the context of their business, right? Take this time. It's a time that we're not, we may never get back in our lifetime. These pandemics happen seems like pretty rarely. So let's take advantage of it and see what, see how you can learn lessons and apply things to your life that you'll be a better person at the end of the day when we go back to whatever this new normal looks like. Well, you know, I guess to wrap it up, you know, and you know, characters easily doesn't require much character in really good times. You know, characters truly defined about how you behave when things are less than good, you know, and, and doing like yep. you're doing now, stepping up and serving, you know, and sharing is really a testament, I think, in this time to character. We see lots of character, you know, right now, people that are stepping out and helping. And I think that's going to be one of the bright spots that are coming out of all of this event. So, you know, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing what you know and, and helping out. So with that being said, thank you for taking time and, you know, the dog and the kids and all that stuff. I mean, they, they got the memo and they didn't come up and bark or anything during the middle of it. They did. Yeah. If your kids came <laughs> up, barking, we'd be worried. Time. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> well it was been my pleasure, Bob. I appreciate the invitation. You bet. Thanks for inviting me into your home, huh? Take care. Yep. All right. Thanks.